going to stay out too late. Right away. <laughs> now, if we wait long enough, <laughs> no comment, but I'm betting you that somebody's going to leave this auditorium within the next five minutes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. <laughs> I will make no further comment. <laughs> Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. Some guys just can't stick to it. <laughs> Luke 18, verses 1 through 17. Uh, now he was... Wait a minute. Okay. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart saying there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, shall not God bring about justice for his elect, who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. Let's pray. Lord, give us the eyes of children that not only see but believe. Uh, give us uh, that sincerity of the child that not only hears but believes. And give us, O oh Lord, the hope of a child that not only sees the present but the future. Turn our eyes to Jesus, to the hope of the glory that is still coming. To Jesus, the one who is the guarantee of all the promises of God.
to Jesus, who comes to be our Savior. In his name we make our prayer now. Amen. Uh, We have a hayride tonight. We're going to quit at eight, right? Welcome, Londa. Some people leave just before the sermon. Some people come in just before the sermon. <laughs> uh, the, uh, in the last couple of evenings, we've been talking about the kingdom of God and uh, uh, focusing more and more on the kinds of people that are particularly uh, uh, sort of circles of concern within the kingdom of God, especially Luke's gospel. And uh, last night, you remember, we talked about the lost, that kind of category And tonight we come to another category like that. We're going to talk about children and the kingdom of God. And uh, I want to draw your attention to do this uh, to verses 15 through 17 of this uh, 18th chapter of Luke's Gospel. Uh, Now, uh, maybe some of you uh, at this stage are wondering why dragging children is sort of leftovers. Uh, uh, Why... (laughs) I mean, there's been... Real work of the Lord this week. Uh, <laughs> you'll never know. <laughs> oh, okay. The, uh, but you know, in a, why? Because usually in American culture, in our culture, children have rather a, a special place, uh, sort of a super extraordinary place. Uh, a Korean friend of mine who had been to the United States for a couple of years had come back to Korea, and we were commenting on. Uh, what, are his, what were his first observations of American culture? Usually we get asked that question. What do you think of Korea, you know? <laughs> the, uh, and uh, so when a Korean comes back from the United States, that's very often the question we used to ask in our home. What are your first impressions of the United States? And this one I thought was very uh, perceptive, uh, enough to make a sermon illustration. Uh, he, come, he, remarked to, uh, he remarked to us uh, uh, in this way. You Americans, he said, seem to think that everything dies at the age of 30. (laughs) And uh, then he commented, I was never so impressed by how a culture oriented itself around children. Then he started to talk about the American attitudes towards parents, which appalled him, nursery homes, things like this, which uh, he could not understand. And, uh, but all of it uh, uh, zeroed in on uh, how he saw our culture as basic, basically sort of a youth-oriented culture. Now, uh, I expect my friend uh, uh, could easily have seen that if he'd been in any one of our homes, in an American home, for a week. Uh, he observed what uh, we used to call here in the United States, uh, mother. Now we call our bus driver number 445689. Uh, the... Uh, uh, she has, uh, she's a bus driver with a schedule that uh, varies from hour to hour. Uh, never sends her down the same street twice uh, during the same week, right? The, uh, it's 3 o'clock, uh, uh, pick up Johnny from basketball practice, uh, get him over to his newspaper route where he has to pick up the papers by 3.40. In the meantime, in between this, I have to get Janet at 3.47 because she's going to the girl guides or whatever guides there happen to be. The, uh, at 4 o'clock, it's the twins at the library for the reading club. Uh, and then in between all of this, it's get the dinner ready. The uh, pick up James, Janet, and the twins in that order, and I won't bother you with the evening schedule. I mean, you know how it goes. Uh, the, uh, 
that's uh, generally how you look at, uh, at uh, family life in the United States of America. We used to have families. Now we have youth-oriented consumer units. <laughs> the uh, absolutely essential to the well-being of American life. <laughs> uh, you can now get, uh, at least in Philadelphia, private credit ratings at some of the large department stores for your children 13 years of age and under. <laughs> the uh, bank accounts you may open for your children at birth. <laughs> and McDonald's for family togetherness. Uh, if all else fails and the schedule gets too hard, you can meet at McDonald's now at 7 a.m. <laughs> uh, we are brought together by Egg McMuffin because, <laughs> because you deserve a break today. <laughs> now, uh, I think uh, ha the, uh, not all of American life, of course, uh, uh, presents this glorious type of pattern, uh, but maybe... Uh, in even some of these kinds of things are the darker strains, uh, the uh, consumerism that sort of tears away at the roots of family life, and uh, darker strains as well. Strains that sometimes I think uh, you may not see uh, if you live in, the, uh, in a white suburban area. But they're strains and come a lot closer to the surface, uh, uh, come a lot closer to the surface as you get closer to the city, see the pain and the anguish. And uh, you begin to see a situation or a setting that prevailed uh, very much like those of the New Testament. Uh, and you don't have to look very far to see it. The, the opposite side of the youth culture. Uh, abortion laws, uh, which uh, continue to open the uh, floodgates of opportunity uh, for people who, uh, who end up uh, rating man's value by his age. The... Uh, uh, in the uh, first century, the Romans uh, would have been very happy, I think, with some of our uh, laws and with this kind of rating system. One of the commonly accepted uh, means of birth control in the first century uh, was child exposure, where you took a child and just simply laid it on a hillside and let it die. The, uh, in uh, North American technological life, we've advanced beyond that stage, and we can do the exposure even before the child is born. Uh, there is a dark side uh, to American life and its, added, and its attitude towards children. Uh, we have added in the process a new word uh, to the English language, which occasionally you can hear in the evening news uh, to add our, our contempt for children. It's called the battered child syndrome. Uh, in the last few months, I think the last three or four, in our neighborhood, our city, Philadelphia radios have told us of parents who have abandoned children in gas station restrooms or on turnpikes. They've turned up in waste baskets outside of turnpikes. Uh, in uh, a half a block from our house is the beginning of a youth subculture in Philadelphia uh, among, uh, in which children make war on children. Uh, they call them street gangs. The, uh, and uh, street gangs have become sort of America's depraved version of the Middle Ages children's crusade. And then, of course, we have the generation gap uh, that keeps telling us, uh, uh, encouraging making war uh, on everybody over 25 years of age. Uh, some of that has died out, but I'm afraid uh, the bitterness is uh, always still there. Uh, now, not all the battered children uh, make the headlines and appear in courts and police precincts. 
Uh, battered children come in all kinds of sizes and shapes. Uh, here's Nancy. She's a very grim little third grader. Uh, her parents live in the suburbs. They have a very nice place along with another a lot of nice places in the suburbs. Uh, this little third grader goes to Sunday school, goes to church, along with her parents. Uh, she works so hard to complete perfect assignments, she almost never smiles. Uh, each afternoon, she, bear, she, she takes her notebooks, hugs them to herself and her books, uh, mounts the, uh, the steps of the bus for the ride home. Uh, she does very poorly in original writing. Uh, she is too tense to think about anything but being correct. She's a third grader. In the process of trying to help her, her Christian school teacher uh, overlooks punctuation errors, misspellings, and messy papers, and just writes on front of one of uh, those kinds of papers, uh, Nancy, I like your journal, the teacher writes. And slowly, her journal begins to change. Uh, she starts revealing personal thoughts, uh, personal feelings, and the teacher is delighted. Good, Nancy, she writes on the paper. Uh, and she writes that on a very messy-looking paper. Uh, Nancy's mother calls up the teacher and requests a conference. Uh, what are you teaching in that school? Uh, Nancy's mother asks uh, the teacher when they sit down to talk. Uh, she's got Nancy's paper in her hand. Uh, look, you wrote good on this paper of my daughter. Uh, it's not good at all. It's a mess. Uh, no wonder children uh, in this school today can't write properly. Uh, when I taught school, I read pencil all of the children's mistakes. I can't believe you can be so lazy as to uh, commend uh, mistakes like this. Uh, Nancy is suffering from the battered child syndrome. Only she doesn't show the bruises. The bruises are all up here, and they'll show up later. Uh, children in a classroom, maybe in a Sunday school classroom, will send their SOSs day by day. Uh, watch me, watch me, teacher. And that watch me, that watch me is saying, I'm a battered child. Listen to what I'm trying to say. Uh, see what I can do, uh, they'll say, to uh, maybe to a tired parent sitting down, sitting down to watch TV after a long day. Uh, Daddy, play ball with me. I'm a little tired now. And once more, the battered child syndrome takes over. Aren't those children really saying, where do I belong? Do you really see me, Daddy? Do you really think I'm worth anything? Uh, how do you look at children? Now, I think that's important, then, in terms of what the Bible says. We could expand this uh, list and try to show you how the world looks at children. I uh, brought along with me uh, a little thing I clipped out of a news magazine just a few months ago, something about children in the world. Maybe this will give you a picture of it. For those of us who live in the United States, where attitudes towards children are very different. There are 1,439 million children in the world today under the age of 15. Now that represents 36% of the world's population. 36% of the world's population today are 15 years of age and under. Out of that population, 16% have insufficient food energy. Out of that population, 30, only 35% are uh, in school. 35% uh, are of school age, but not in school. 43% uh, of the primary school age girls in the third world countries are not in school. Uh, five million children will die this year 
from a total of six major infectious diseases that are preventable simply by, uh, by uh, inoculation, and they'll never get them. 417 million children under the age of 15 live without adequate housing. 604 million children do not have access to effective medical care. 72 million suffer from severe handicaps. 175 million need special education or rehabilitation and will never get it. In less developed countries, half of the children born this year will not live to the age of 25. Uh, do you wonder why missionaries cry? Now, I think all of this is important uh, as giving us sort of a background for taking a look again, startled enough to look again at the uh, uniqueness of what Jesus is trying to do here uh, in this passage. Uh, Matthew, in Luke chapter 18, uh, the, uh, where all of these things, I think, sort of remind us that we're not very far from the disciples in verse 15. Uh, here are the disciples, verse 15, and they were bringing even their babies to him so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, uh, they began rebuking them. Uh, Luke here, I think, is very sensitive to what is going on. Matthew's gospel uh, tells us in a parallel passage, Matthew 19, verse 13, tells us why these mothers brought their babies to Jesus. Matthew's gospel says, so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Now, if you read Luke's version, as we've just done, you've noticed that Luke doesn't even bring in the reason why the babies are brought. Uh, uh, there's no request here for prayer. Uh, it just mentions rather starkly, so that he might touch them. Uh, so that he might touch them. And uh, you're impressed by just the minimal amount of activity that these mothers expect from Jesus. And uh, just a touch was all they wanted. And the disciples say, you know, don't bother the Lord uh, with this kind of business. Uh, to emphasize the enormity of what the disciples are doing, Luke sort of downplays anything else except all they wanted to do was have Jesus touch the disciples. And uh, not only that, Luke alone tells us uh, that these were babies. Uh, verse 15, they brought their babies to him. Now, there's a lot of words uh, that show up in the New Testament for the description of children. Uh, this is a word uh, that means a lot more than just simply child. Uh, uh, there were little infants brought to Jesus, of course. And uh, uh, these, uh, we've got the picture of little to cute little toddlers uh, marching up to Jesus in kind of a Sunday school building atmosphere. Uh, the, uh, uh, this, isn't, this word doesn't even describe that kind of toddler. These weren't children uh, of more advanced years, uh, you know, wearing cute little pink dieties, etc., uh, these were babies, uh, and babies means uh, mothers had to carry them in their arms. That's the kind of children they were. That's the state or level it was all at. I mean, they couldn't sit there and get a nice little story from Jesus about flowers and bees and birds. The, uh, they were just babies. Uh, maybe there was a smelly diaper or two that needed changing in the bunch, and uh, uh, that was uh, how it all was. And so the disciples say, look, forget it. Uh, these babies don't need healing. Uh, these babies are incapable of uh, instruction. Uh, they're too young even for cradle rolls. Uh, and yet, uh, uh, and so why waste Jesus' time with, with uh, not even with kids? Uh, notice, however, the, uh, uh, the response of our Lord to all of this. Uh, verse 16, But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God uh, belongs... To such as these. 
Now, uh, there's a contrast here between the attitude of the disciples and the attitude of Jesus towards children. Uh, the uh, disciples here are sort of giving us a window on their, the way they look at things, uh, a window on their world. Uh, they're giving us a picture of how they look at children, and also uh, they're giving us a picture of how they look on Jesus. Uh, now, all of us know a few verses from the Old Testament that we've come across in sermons on Mother's Day, Father's Day, Children's Day. Uh, we know uh, things like, uh, what is it, Psalm 128 uh, that talks about children, calls them uh, all of plants around the table. Uh, let's see, Proverbs 17.6 speaks of children as the crown of old men. The, uh, nothing here about spilling milk at the breakfast table. Uh, arrows in the hand of a mighty man. Happy is the man who have his, has his quiver full of them <laughs> and gags on the mouths of all of them. <laughs> uh, the, uh, now that's, you know, that's the Old Testament attitude towards children. Uh, but things have sort of slipped in between the Old Testament and the time of Jesus. Uh, an awful lot of things have slipped. And uh, Jewish attitudes towards children in the meantime have changed pretty radically. They're no longer quivers full of great little arrows, you know. <laughs> They've all, they're all sort of dead-end streets kind of thing. And floating around in the days of Jesus were certain rabbinical proverbs or ideas created by the rabbis that give you kind of a fair idea of how the people of Jesus' day uh, looked at children. Uh, Jewish rule books, for example, put together, constantly uh, connect words like, quote, deaf and dumb, weak-minded children. Uh, another list that we have from the rabbis of Jesus' day uh, adds to that list the blind and the Gentiles and the women and the children. The, I mean, how low can you get? <laughs> or here's another list, an, another uh, list. The deformed, women, slaves, lame, blind, sick, old, crippled, and babies. <laughs> the, uh, all the way down to the pits. Uh, nothing said... A great, thankfully enough, about seminary professors. Uh, now, the, uh, there's no reason to, uh, I think, suspect that Jesus' disciples had a list that was any different from all of these. Uh, the world of Jesus' disciples saw the dregs of human society in certain categories. The blind, the lame, the sick, women, and children, and babies. What a waste of time. And then along comes Jesus and destroys all of those lists in verses 16 and 17 of this passage. He says to them, let the babies come. And when he says that, not only is he rebuking the disciples' view of children, but he's also rebuking or correcting the disciples' view of Jesus himself. And he does that, I'm going to argue, in verse 17. The, uh, so he works at correcting two things in this passage. Verse 16 seems to concentrate on, uh, on, the, on the disciples' misunderstanding concerning the children. And verse 17, in the response of Jesus, concentrates on the disciples' misunderstanding of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Now, the rebuke is administered in a very revolutionary manner. Uh, the uh, reason... For receiving children is a very revolutionary reason. Verse 16, Permit the children to come to me and don't hinder them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Here's this link 
that we talked about the opening night uh, between the kingdom of God and children. Now, uh, what on earth does Jesus mean when he says the kingdom of God belongs to children like these? Now, I think most of us have, uh, uh, putting it very simply, I think what he means is babies have a share in the kingdom of God. Now, uh, uh, he, uh, he's not speaking here, I think, in some allegorical fashion. Uh, Jesus is not saying, as it were, here in this passage, uh, the kingdom of God is made up of those who are like little children. Uh, he doesn't mean to say uh, the kingdom of God is made up of those who have a childlike spirit of simplicity and humility. I don't think that's what Jesus means. Uh, I don't think Jesus here is thinking about the trustfulness of childhood. And that's a position taken by a great worthy of the church by the name of Warfield. I think Warfield's dead off here. The, uh, uh, it's, uh, he's not thinking about simplicity or directness or guilelessness or artlessness of children. He's thinking about children, about babies, period. The, uh, and in particular, he's keeping in mind the way he knows his disciples have thought about children. I mean, you see, they have thought about children as worthless, uh, unimportant instruments. And they don't really get to be instruments until they get a brain. Until that, they're nothing. And, and here are all these little bundles of nothing that the mothers have brought, and all they want Jesus to do is to touch them. And the disciples are all up in arms. It's a waste of time. Children are a waste of time. Beggars and women and kids. The, uh, the Jews said, you see, Remember, we talked about this last night. The Jews said, look, the kingdom of God is for those who are worthy of it, right? Uh, Pharisees, not publicans. Uh, law keepers, not lawbreakers. Uh, Mr. Cleans, not the lost. And what Jesus is doing is breaking all of those categories right now. Jesus is saying, no. He's saying, uh, look, the kingdom of God's love and grace is for those who don't fit. Uh, it's for the unworthy. It's... Uh, for anybody who uh, doesn't seem to belong, uh, uh, the, uh, one of the, it's for widows, uh, it's for prostitutes, uh, it's for tax gatherers, uh, it's for convicted felons, it's uh, for judges without any fear of God, and it's for children too. And uh, in fact, if we had the time, the whole of chapter 18 is, I think, one illustration after another in which Jesus, the, Luke, sort of repeats the same lesson with every story he tells in chapter 18. Uh, it begins, if you remember, with the parable of the widow uh, who keeps asking for help from the unjust judge. God's kingdom grace comes for widows without legal protection. Uh, women who are in the corner, not knowing where to turn. God's kingdom... Uh, is pictured in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Here's a Pharisee and a publican go up to pray, as Jesus says in the parable. And the wrong fella gets justified. The uh, doesn't seem to be working out, does it? Uh, here is a rich young ruler, uh, moral, upstanding, uh, deeply concerned about his spiritual life, not knowing uh, uh, how to be saved, but so concerned about it, he comes running to Jesus to ask him how to be saved. And uh, Jesus says, you've only got one problem, give away all your money and come follow me. God's kingdom is for the poor, and he can't handle it. Uh, the, and I'm afraid uh, most of us would have difficulty with it too. And the chapter ends with Jesus going to Jerusalem to be beaten and scourged and killed by all the right kind of people. And the only man at the end of this chapter who recognizes Jesus as the Messiah 
The only one who sees through all the pain and all the sorrow and sees that Jesus has come to save, recognizes his saving power on the road to Jericho, is a blind man by the name of Bartimaeus who begs for a living. Crazy. The, uh, and the whole point of this chapter is it sure is. That's what grace is always is. Just crazy. Every category rejected by people as unfit is being reclaimed, recycled by Jesus here in this chapter. And children are part of the recycling process. The, uh, and Luke's gospel especially is underlining this. I, I wish we had the time to go into all of the places in Luke's gospel where he uniquely concentrates on children. For example, uh, only Luke's gospel tells us of the display of the power of the kingdom of God when Jesus stands at the coffin of the only son of a widow from the area called Nain. And uh, Luke is the one who tells us that Jesus speaks to the young boy in the coffin and he says in chapter 7, Arise, and he arises. And it's very important that that boy is understood as the only son. He's the only social security link of his mother. And he's gone. And now Jesus brings that son back from the dead. The dead daughter of an official uh, from a synagogue is touched by Jesus. And Luke is the only gospel that adds she was an only daughter. All the links with the leftovers, with the poor, with the broken, the potentially uh, uh, oppressible. Here's a young boy seized by demonic convulsions. And uh, he's seized in turn by Jesus, by the power of the kingdom of God. And Luke, again, is the only gospel account that, uh, that records the plea of the father, he is my only boy, uh, chapter 9, verse 38. See, the world says uh, God's kingdom is too big and too glorious for babies. And Jesus says, God's kingdom is built for babies. Uh, God's kingdom is built for children. God has come to rule in grace uh, and in mercy. He's got good news. And that good news is not just for the right kind of people. Uh, none are more intimately involved uh, in his saving plan uh, than even little infants. Why, even the very name that Jesus uses to dignify his own disciples... Uh, is the language of the cradle in the nursery, isn't it? He calls them my little children, uh, my little flock. Uh, those who are members of the kingdom of God are little ones. And I think that's beautiful. Something we need to be reminded of again and again and again. Uh, sometimes hits you very hard. I remember uh, many years ago now, in 1968, uh, in the mountains of eastern Korea, uh, coming across this fact sort of hits you with uh, uh, awful reality in a very awful time. About 358 guerrillas had been sent down from North Korea. We had, still have a lot of uh, guerrilla activity in Korea, as you know. And about 350, it was quite a movement, had moved down the eastern coast of Korea on boats and then had been dropped along the coastline. Now, this is the area where Ralph and Joan English are working now. This was an area, it's an area very, very isolated, as you may remember from their newsletters. Then there were no telephones. There was only one road all the way in, and it was a long 12 to 18-hour trip by car to get there. The uh, very isolated and cut off. Uh, and we had a large number of churches in that area. Uh, Percentage-wise, a higher number of Christians in that particular area than other parts of the country. 
350 guerrillas landed by ship and within one month's period of time uh, had conducted a program of terrorism killing over 400 people in that area. That was 1968, a couple of years before we left Korea. We went up there then to spend two weeks uh, visiting in the churches to try and encourage the Christians, uh, going from house to house to share the gospel and uh, to bring joy and as much encouragement and counsel to the saints as we could. Of the many people who died there, interesting enough, over half of them were Christians. And there were many of us who felt that that was a deliberate attempt uh, by the North Koreans to destroy, to bring terror particularly to the Christian church. Uh, whether it was or not, I don't know. I remember the first day uh, going to the first church, uh, arriving on a bus in the marketplace, getting off the bus, and hundreds of people, it seemed then, crowded around a small little circle. I walked up to the circle to see what it was. Uh, there were the bodies of ten people uh, lied out in, lying uh, in the open marketplace. Uh, they had been shot that morning. Of the ten people that had been shot that morning, six of the ten were Christians from the church that I was to go to that evening. Uh, four of the six were under ten years of age uh, and had come to welcome me. God's kingdom, you see, belonged to those children. Uh, on that same trip, we went to a small village uh, there was a village, little tiny church, been there for years and years, very little growth, high resistance to the gospel in that area. They'd never been able to afford a pastor, and the church was over 50 years of age. And uh, uh, the, uh, the, minister, the ministerial uh, obligations were being met by a very godly Korean elder and his family. He had a wife and three lovely boys. The oldest boy was about 16, 17 years of age, and the youngest about uh, 9 or 10. During that time, we held meetings in the evening, as we did, uh, trying to encourage the saints. And then in the afternoon, that elder and his three boys and I would go through the village, uh, evangelizing the houses and talking to people about the grace of God, encouraging them to repent and believe uh, in the face of this horror and agony. The last night we had day, the last morning we had daybreak prayer meeting. Uh, those boys always there at the daybreak prayer meeting. And then I got on the bus, headed down about 18 miles to the next church. And uh, that night when we stood up in the pulpit of that church uh, to preach, uh, I remember just before the service began, the door opened and a, a young man came in from the other church where we'd been to with a word uh, about an hour after we had left the home of that elder. A squad of six North Korean agents had come to the house, uh, murdered the elder and his wife and the three children, cut off their arms and uh, heads, and then piled the parts of the body in front of the house and uh, as a warning uh, about what would happen if the Christian church didn't yield to, to communism. Uh, the kingdom of God belongs to children. The first trip uh, we ever made to Korea, always one of those unforgettable kinds of things with Bruce Hunt, and out for a week in a small country church to do evangelistic work. Uh, the first week we ever uh, spent in a church, uh, ever, uh, beginning our, our services at 3.30 in the morning, the daybreak prayer meeting, uh, then uh, a Bible study in the morning, preaching in the afternoon, evening services, and on through a week, uh, a pretty exhausting week for a new missionary. And I don't know how uh, uh, somebody in his 60s did it, but uh, he still remains probably the greatest missionary the Orthodox Presbyterian Church has ever seen. The, uh, and in that little church, small little church, little boy, always there, uh, there at daybreak prayer meeting, there for the Bible study, uh, there with us when we went out preaching in the afternoon, there with us in the evening service. Didn't stay at the church, 
He walked something like 10 to 15 miles every night back to his home, and then he was there for the 3.30 prayer meetings every morning. 12 years old, never forget it. Face uh, just a mass of scar tissue. Uh, sometimes you didn't even want to look at him. Just a, a huge mass of scar tissue, 12 years of age. Uh, two years before he had decided to become a Christian, he was to be the first Christian in his family, the oldest son, and his parents had thrown boiling water uh, in his face in their rage at his decision to become a Christian. And uh, there he was, faithful servant of Jesus. The kingdom of God belongs to children. Now, uh, Jesus, I think, in this passage also, uh, tries to do something more. He also moves us one step further, uh, not only talking about children, but in verse 17, he also talks about himself. The kingdom of God, he says, belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. Now, uh, I'm going to do something maybe a little bit different than the traditional understanding of this passage. You can figure it out. I've given you so many wild ideas this week. Just, you know, chalk it off to somewhat more, one more nutty concept. The, uh, or maybe think it through again. Uh, what Jesus is saying here, I think, is not now, he's not now concentrating on babies or children. Now he's shifting around and he's concentrating on the kingdom of God. And he's telling us something about the kingdom. And he's saying, receiving a king, the kingdom of God is like receiving a child. Now most of us, when we come to this passage, immediately start to, we, our eye focuses on the whoever, right? Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. And we sort of mentally link together the whoever and the child, right? Uh, whoever, doesn't, whoever uh, like a child, doesn't receive the kingdom of God, will not enter it. That's usually how we look at this verse. Isn't that correct? And then we usually try to figure out, most of the time, what are some of the attributes of a child we should have in order to receive the kingdom or enter the kingdom. Now, I want to suggest to you that that is not what this verse is trying to say. The two words that you should link together mentally here are not the words whoever and child. The two words you should put together mentally are kingdom and child. Now, uh, what do I mean? Uh, the, uh, the, uh, that is, well, uh, let's, let's uh, uh, put it another word. Uh, if, in fact, if I had a little Greek grammar and could throw it at you, and I'm afraid I don't have enough to throw, uh, uh, Greek grammar would tell you that when you look for, when you have a word like as, verse 17, or like, whoever does not blah, 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 like, and you're trying to find out what's the point of comparison, like the child, all right? What's, where's the thing you're comparing it to? Blank like a child. Where do you put the blank in? In Greek grammar, you always go to the nearest noun. Now, to do that here, you don't go all the way to the beginning of the sentence and find the whoever. You go right next door and you find the kingdom. The point of comparison, then, is the kingdom and the child. And uh, what, then, is trying to, what, then, is Jesus saying here? Jesus is now teaching the disciples something about the kingdom of God, and he's using this isolated incident to do it. He's thinking about the great final day of human history, when God is going to put an end to sin. He's thinking about the marvelous day when God's going to reorder the entire creation. Uh, he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God shall not enter. It's all future, isn't it? He's looking ahead. 
looking ahead to that great day when we enter the final uh, glorious day of the kingdom of God. Okay, and he's thinking about that day of glory. He's thinking about that day of marvels. Uh, that day of God's grace when finally uh, sin will once and for all be put away with and there'll be a day of joy and rejoicing, uh, perfection, the likes of which we'll never see. And uh, he's saying, look, that's future. That's God's coming day of glory. That's uh, God's uh, kingdom of grace and it's uh, on its way. But before that entering in takes place, something else must happen. Before that entering in comes, uh, takes place, we must first of all receive the kingdom. See, there's two kind of steps here, right? He talks about receiving the kingdom and he talks about entering the kingdom. Now, the entering, that's coming. The receiving is now. Well, uh, what does Jesus mean anyway? That receiving of the kingdom is here and it's now, isn't it? Remember what we said two nights ago? When you talk about the kingdom, we're really talking about Jesus, right? So when we talk about receiving the kingdom, we're really talking about receiving Jesus. Isn't, uh, that's the point we're trying to make, isn't it? And that's why uh, you remember uh, elsewhere, uh, listen again, to ver- in ver- for example, to verse 16. Permit the children to come to me, for the kingdom of God belongs to these. Uh, uh, the children coming to Jesus is the children receiving the kingdom, you see. Uh, these two things are all linked uh, together. When you come to Jesus, you come to the kingdom. In Jesus, God has come to visit. And uh, in Jesus, all God's promises are starting to take place to be fulfilled. Uh, Now, how do we receive the kingdom now? And Jesus says, receive the kingdom like a child. Uh, Well, how's that? Remember what the disciples think of children? The disciples think of children as worthless, right? That's the whole thing Jesus has been struggling with. Uh, children are the dregs. Children are the bottom of the barrel. Children are worthless. Uh, children are not worth putting time in on. That's what children are like. There's no glory. There's no power. There's no worldly pomp and circumstance in going out and playing in a playpen with kids, right? That's not going to get you anywhere in terms of the power of the world. Uh, Now, kid power may be a slogan for the Boy Scouts, uh, but uh, for presidential candidates, except for kissing occasions, uh, kid power really really means kid no power. uh, And Jesus says, that's the kingdom. That's me. Receive me and receive the kingdom. Uh, But remember, uh, see the power of the kingdom in me, but remember when you do, it is a power exercised in humiliation, in suffering, in what the world will see as worthless and trash. uh, When the Jews waited for the kingdom, they waited for power, and they waited for glory. And all Jesus could offer them was a cross. All Jesus could offer them was a lot of words thrown on the ground like seed. And some of them grew up, and some of them the birds flew away with, And some of them were choked by weeds and never got going. And Jesus says, that's the kingdom. And receive the kingdom like that. Uh, Because that's how the kingdom is going to come. Uh, My kingdom throne is a wooden cross uh, on a hill outside of of, uh, the city gates of Jerusalem. You're going to see it. uh, But it's going to be unleashed in the most unusual place possible. The kingdom power is going to be unleashed to the death of the Son of God. 
uh, for the redemption of God's kingdom power. And if you want to see the kingdom, you've got to crawl your way to Calvary. And if you don't crawl your way to Calvary, you'll never get into the kingdom. You're going to see the glory, and you're going to see the power, and you're going to see love and joy and peace, one day the likes of which you never have seen before. But before you see that, you're going to carry a cross. And before you see that, you've got to walk to the cross. And you've got to lay your burden down. And you've got to put your hands in the nail-scarred hands of Jesus of Calvary. And you've got to say, this is the only place where sins are washed away. This is the only place where night is turned to day. And if you won't do that, you can't see the kingdom. And you can't get in. Because that's what the kingdom is all about. The world sees it as worthless. The world sees it as trash. The world sees it as nothing else. But, says Jesus, blessed. Blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Why do you suppose that Luke's gospel tells us so much about children. Why do you suppose also that Luke's gospel talks, uh, talks so much about Jesus as a child? Because receiving the kingdom is receiving a child. You know, it's interesting that uh, very few of the gospels, as we all know, spend much time on the childhood of Jesus, do they? You're not going to find any information about Jesus as, uh, as a child in the Gospel of Mark, and certainly not in the Gospel of John. You turn basically to Matthew's Gospel, but even more particularly, you turn to Luke's Gospel. Why? I think because uh, what Luke is trying to do is to show us that when God brings his kingdom, he uses a baby wrapped in claws, sitting in a box where animals eat from, to show us how that kingdom comes. Uh, uh, the kingdom is born in a manger uh, with uh, nothing but uh, shepherds to come and see. That child uh, is persecuted, in the is presented in the temple. The, uh, uh, the sacrifice of purification is given, and it's the, the sacrifice that uh, is uh, the poorest allowable for the people of God. Uh, this child, says Luke's Gospel, is set for the uh, fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. This child, uh, says Luke's Gospel, will be a sword to pierce even the heart of Mary. And that's where the kingdom comes. That's God's kingdom come. Uh, not uh, in a mighty monarch, but in a baby, uh, poor and humble and wrapped uh, in dirty linens uh, in a box for animals. And uh, that's what God does in the world when he brings his kingdom and when he calls us into it. Uh, the message of his marvelous grace. He picks up the leftovers of the world and he does it with that one who is himself par excellence, the leftover. Uh, one of the uh, new and most exciting Orthodox Presbyterian churches I know about is now taking shape in the uh, city of Philadelphia. It's a spin-off from uh, a congregation uh, of the New Life Church in uh, the outskirts of Philadelphia. Uh, started by one of the young men who's been sent out to pastor and shepherd this group. Uh, it started in the home of Dr. John Skilton. Now they've bought a storefront. It's one of our few storefront OP churches. And it's only a few blocks away from the Albert Einstein Memorial Hospital. And just about a month or two ago, I was talking to the young man who graduated from Westminster about a year ago, and he's pastoring this group. 
And I said, Paul, how's it going? And he's a very exuberant fellow. He says, praise the Lord. He says, it's just marvelous. I don't understand. <laughs> and uh, what do you mean you don't understand? He says, well, it's just amazing what God's doing. I just don't understand it. And this is about almost a direct quote from Paul. And I said, well, what's God doing that you don't understand? And uh, he says, well, the church is growing. Is that, you can't understand that? <laughs> and uh, he says, no, it's how it's growing. And he said, uh, he began to talk about it. He described the large numbers of people in the congregation. Most of them, he said, are coming from the Albert Einstein Memorial Hospital, the psychiatric ward. <laughs> and now I know the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is a little off, but... <laughs> the, he's, he's building a church out of psychiatric patients from the Albert Einstein Memorial Hospital. And I said, boy, that's wonderful. And he said, well, shall I tell you about the other half? <laughs> and uh, in the state of Pennsylvania, we've started this process of closing down some of the state mental hospitals, the, or whatever Jay Adams calls them. And, <laughs> and they're closing them down, and they're, and they're flooding our streets with these poor patients who are sort of in the twilight zone. We have a lot of them in our particular neighborhood just wandering up and down the streets all day and uh, still confused, not knowing where to go or what to do. And they're flooding into this church. <laughs> He's got a congregation, what I guess Donald McGavern would call a homogeneous unit. <laughs> and it's made up of psychiatric and mental patients. Now, I, the mind boggles. I'm just waiting for them to send their first elders to the General Assembly. <laughs> I... Uh, I don't, I, I, I've been to one General Assembly in 10 years, and I did tell Henry it would be the last one I'd go to, but when that first elder goes, I'm going again. <laughs> then we'll see if we really believe 1 Corinthians 1. If we really believe that God uh, does not choose the wise and the mighty, uh, but he takes the small things to put to naught the things that are. Marvelous to see how God looks for all the leftovers of the world and he puts them together and he says, uh, through you I'm going to display my grace. That's what the kingdom's all about. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of serving you in the world and thank you that you've called us. You've reached down to us, leftovers, the broken, and the useless and through the Holy Spirit you've given us purpose and a calling and now Lord help us to reach out help us to reach out to the children help us to reach out uh, to where the bruised and the battered children are and to show our love Father help us to reach out as Christians to children that are feeling pain and agony in this American culture and society Lord help us to reach out to the prisoners and to their families at home uh, who still feel the agony and the pain and the brutality. Lord, help us to reach out to the poor and the broken, those, O oh Lord, who especially feel uh, brutality and the hate and the anger of the city and our families. And help us to call people to Christ because the kingdom of God is like this. In Jesus' name, amen.